Welcome to the Business of Doing Science podcast brought to you by Bagamian Scientific Consulting. On this podcast, we discuss different aspects of pursuing science-related careers and just how science is actually done beyond the bench. So stay tuned to find out more. Hello, everyone. I'm Karun Bagamian, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Lindsay Leitner and Heidi Bolduck. We're very excited to kick off our inaugural episode with our friend, Elaine Kibaugh, who has a very interesting story of her career transition from academia to industry. To start us off, Heidi has a little background for us on the history of a PhD. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. Thank you, Karun. So we are going to be exploring the evolution of advanced degrees, and the, really, the question here is, did you know that originally advanced degrees were not required to become a professor in the United States? In fact, graduate students had to go study in Germany overseas for about three years in order to obtain their PhD. This was all the way back in the 1850s. And it was only once Harvard and Yale launched their first PhD program about 20 years later, so around the 1870s, that PhDs slowly began, began to become more accepted. Then in 1919, the Rockefeller Foundation decided to establish the first postdoctoral fellowship program. The goal of it at that time was to provide recent graduates with the opportunity to continue to build their teaching and also their research skills so that they could hopefully take on tenure track positions. So really the goal at that time was to you know, produce professors from their participation in that fellowship program. I had no idea. <laughs> And providing this type of advanced training also made sense really as well when you look at the changing landscape of the United States following World War II. At this point, undergraduate and graduate degree programs, so pretty much any college degree, was expanding like crazy as returning soldiers came home and also returned to the workplace. So fast forward another about another 30 years, and by the 1980s, highly educated people became more common, and therefore the education requirements for certain careers, you did see that they did be, begin to increase. So high-profile jobs such as those in foreign policy, international intelligence, careers like that, now expected candidates to hold advanced degrees. However, the interesting thing about all of this advancement meant that there were more candidates competing for a surprisingly small number of professorships in academia. So fast forward to 2021, and now there are a lot of statistics and research out there that says less than 1% of PhD graduates actually end up working as tenure-track professors. Wow. <laughs> uh, many of those people go on to work in research-related positions in industry. So most of the time people bounce around, you know, they might like try to work in academia, try to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But ultimately, a lot of them, well, the vast majority of them do go on to work in industry. And this is why we feel it's very important to discuss making this tradition, or excuse me, transition from academia to industry. In fact, we even have a guest speaker today who is here to tell you about exactly that and tell you a little bit more about her personal transition. 
Thank you, Heidi. Yeah, I had no idea about any of that. That's really interesting. And I can't believe that it's that low at this point because, you know, I've heard figures thrown yeah. around and less than 1% is really low. And it's funny because sometimes I feel like that's viewed as a traditional trajectory of what a PhD does. And when you're in grad school, that's what is shown to you, even though more programs are showing a wider, you know, range of careers. But that's crazy yeah. that it's only less than, less than 1%. Totally. Yeah. And there's like no prep, you know, yeah. for that, what, yeah. 90, 99, 5% <laughs> yeah. yeah. of people that are, you know, trying to get out in the workforce. And I yeah. checked um, multiple sources and that's yeah, just that's the crazy. flow of what ends up happening. Um, yeah. Sometimes people like try to stay in academia and then they just like don't or can't. So. And that's exactly why I asked Elaine to join us today. So I know Elaine from my graduate degree. We met in graduate school, and uh, I know her story, but she's going to tell, tell us all her story because it is an interesting one, and it was one of the earlier transitions I saw, and I, was, and I thought was pretty great. And I know that it wasn't exactly where she thought she would end up, but it has worked out pretty well from her. So hi, Elaine. <laughs> Hi, ladies. Hey, Corinne. It's really nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. How That's right. I'm, I'm doing well. And I'm really, really looking forward to talking about this with you. So the yeah, first question, the, sorry, sorry, you were saying something? No, I was going to say I'm excited too. I, I'm glad that you all invited me. And I too am shocked by the number of less than 1%. Right. You know, I, was yeah. expecting, I was expecting it to be around 10%. Yeah, because that's um, what I used so, to hear too. But it makes sense because I bet you every year more and more people are getting those degrees. So it just reduces, you know, and there's less jobs. Right. So, the, so the first and most important question is, Elaine, what do you do? And even more importantly, ah. how did you get there? <laughs> All right. So the official title of my job is therapy consultant for deep brain stimulation. Um, and what that, what that is, is it, I have a sales position for a medical device company, Boston Scientific. Um, and I basically assist in it all aspects of patients who have Parkinson's disease who are going to be implanted with a deep brain stimulator that will help treat uh, the motor symptoms of that disease. So I get to do things from being in the neurology clinic with the neurologist while they, they program these devices to being in the, the surgery while the neurosurgeon implants the devices uh, to various other things that you know involve patient education, community outreach, um, all kinds of things. It, it's a really cool job. It's it's really fun, and it's a you know I feel like it's a privilege that I get to do it. Um, the the other question of how did I get there is it's quite the path because as you said, it is definitely not. I didn't even know this was a job available when I went to grad school, right? So I'd never even heard of this. If you had told me this was a job that people did, I would not have believed you. Um, <laughs> so it's definitely quite a, a winding path, but it's it's. It's a journey that was really fun the, the whole way. So um, I'm definitely excited to share that with you all. I have one question before we move on to that, actually. For our listeners sure. that may, might be, you know, a lot of people hear about Parkinson's disease, but I'm sure a lot of people don't know exactly what it is. So what is it exactly? Uh, and how, how many people are affected by it? Well, that's a great question. So Parkinson's disease is a degenerative movement disorder. 
Um, it's actually marked by a decrease in dopamine producing cells in the brain. Uh, and it's interesting because we don't actually know what causes the disease. Uh, we know about 10% of people with it have a genetic uh, cause, and then the rest of them we don't know. So it's you know wow. it's likely environmental or some kind of you know gene by environment interaction. And no it's idea. actually becoming more prevalent. Yeah. So wow. uh, it affects one in a million Americans. And then it, you know if you look at it worldwide, there's more than 10 million people affected by it. And recently, there was a there was actually a book uh, published by actually a, one of the leading neurologists in this field out of the University of Florida, right there in Gainesville, where you guys are, um, talking about how it looks like Parkinson's might actually become a pandemic, like it's it's on the rise that much. So wow. I'm sure many of our listeners will probably at least have someone they know, whether it be a family member or a friend, uh, that's impacted by Parkinson's in some way. That's right. I do. I do know people yeah. that have it. Same. My, my father, my late father, he got it towards the end um, of his life and was on medications for it. But we don't know exactly, you know, what the cause was still to this right. day. So wild. Yeah. So I'll, at some point in this interview, I'll tell you guys what deep brain stimulation does for Parkinson's patients. But it's it's truly a miracle. And it's just one of those jobs where you're like, wow, I got to be a part of that today. Yeah, maybe when you're describing your, maybe when we talk more about like your current job duties might be a good time to talk about that. Yeah. So, sure. yeah. So let's, let's talk about uh, how you got to this amazing job and a really obviously important, you know, helping patients live better lives, which is amazing. Um, so how about your educational history? What, um, I said we we're in the same right. program, but I didn't talk about specifics. So, yeah. So tell us a All little right. bit. Yeah. So I, when I actually, uh, the first university that I went to was University of Georgia um, in Athens. And I think like a lot of people, I started out with the pre-med track, right? I was going to be a doctor. And, and somewhere along the way, I, I got a job in research and just fell in love with it. Um, and so then I, you know, I changed paths a little bit. You don't have to change too much, right, when you go from a pre-med major to, to research. Um, and so I, I uh, studied genetics at the University of Georgia. And then after that, surprisingly, my, my now husband, but boyfriend then, um, we decided that we were just going to sell all of our stuff. So we, we sold everything we owned and, and moved to Costa Rica. And we actually worked at a research station that was run by the University of Georgia. So we would, we had research projects that we did, and then we would have college uh, study abroad classes that would come through, um, and we would help teach those classes. So my parents were very unhappy when we did that, right, because they thought I should be getting a job or going to med school, not running around Central America broke and working for free. Um, but but we did that. Sounds that and, so awesome. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like my dream. On so many levels. <laughs> yeah, if you know, we often laugh. We say, if only we knew how blessed we were back then to not have any money and not have a care in the world. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we did that for three years, and it was during that time that I was like, wow, like I knew that research was where my passion was. Um, at least at that time in my life, okay, you're going to hear that I have a lot of passion all throughout my life, probably <laughs> overuse the word, but um, when, nothing when wrong with that. Home, I get it. Yeah. That's right. 
so so we hitchhiked home um and in the three months it took us to hitchhike home i decided that i was going to go back to graduate school so that i could do research and run my own research lab um you know and, and basically ask the questions that i wanted to ask not somebody else's questions and so when, when i got back i got i had to get a job obviously before I could figure out how to go back to school. Um, and I somehow landed the coolest job for me at that time uh, at the CDC, working with uh, vaccine, like we were developing vaccines for pandemic preparedness. So we were getting ready for a bird flu that hadn't hit yet. Um, and so the first two weeks were really cool. I got to wear one of those biohazard suits you know, and walked around like a marshmallow woman and, and did the research in there. And then after about two weeks, I realized that the, all the novelty had worn off and having to shower <laughs> into your job and shower out of your job after being in, in an air suit for, you know, eight hours wasn't really all that sexy anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so during that time, I applied to, to various grad schools and landed on a PhD program at Emory University. Uh, where where I actually met met Karun. Her and I were we were we in the same I feel like I remember us being in the same interview group. And yeah, like we, we were. We were in the same cohort too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I remember us sitting outside on like a porch just talking and laughing and like really just became, you know, like instant friends, almost like we had known each other that's previously. Right. And we really that's connected. Right. And I was like, gosh, I hope we both end up here together. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. And we did, you know, and so so we did that, and, and that um, the focus for that program was population biology, ecology, and evolution, uh, which, as it might sound, is pretty broad. So yeah. we all kind of had different things that we focused <laughs> in, and none happened to be uh, evolutionary genetics, right? And so I studied um, how genes get lost and, and then how they get reborn in the human genome and across genomes. And landed on this really cool disease called Leshnine disease. And Corinne, I don't know how much I sh you want me to go into that. Obviously, mm -hmm. I'm very passionate about that too. So I could talk <laughs> about that for, you know, an hour, um, but I won't. Um, yeah. And so that led me to really be fascinated with the brain and, and how genes in the brain can impact movements and behaviors. Um, and so after finishing my PhD at Emory, I went over to uh, a primate center where they did a lot of neuroscience work um, and continued to study how the genes interact with different neurodegenerative disorders um, over there. Um, and, and my intent was, you know, to be really successful at writing grants and, and open my own lab and, you know, be on the cover of Forbes as, you know, the woman that changes the face of neuroscience right research and, you know, maybe cures autism. Um, yeah. And so I was well on my way to do that. And I don't remember really how it happened, but I was, I read about uh, deep brain stimulation for, for patients with flesh nine disease, which was one of the, the diseases that we were studying. Um, and we had actually found a protein that might be involved in it. Oh, I didn't know that you then like, I got to go uh, up. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Go go ahead. Sorry. No, I was like, that's interesting. I didn't know that like you worked on that at that time too. Oh, cool. yeah. 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 I took part of that with me. I also worked yeah. on, on some stuff with autism and schizophrenia. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. But I found there was a, there was a guy at the, uh, the Cleveland clinic who wanted to do deep brain stimulation on a patient with flesh nine disease. And I got to go up there and, and watch um, and, and help him pick which target because I was studying a, a region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. Um, so I got to go up there and be a part of that. And 
It was just the most incredible thing. So, so these patients with Lesh 9 disease have obsessive compulsive behavior, but it manifests in a self-injurious way. So they'll, you know, kind of they'll actually injure themselves. So they'll bite their fingers, their lips, sometimes their tongues. Um, and it's more of like they don't want to hurt themselves, but it's like this compulsion that they have. Uh, and sometimes they'll even injure their caregivers. And so this particular patient um, really didn't have any other options left because he was going through puberty and the mother was going to have to, you know, institutionalize him because he was a danger to, to her and the other kids. Um, and just seeing the impact of, of this particular procedure, you know, before he had it and then how it impacted the family afterwards was incredible. And for me, I think it just was this change in my head and I was like, that's, that's what I need to do. Like, it felt like that was my calling. Interesting. Um, mm. Wow. Yeah. And so for the next so probably how did seven it change years, his... that was. Yeah. Sorry. How did it change his, uh, or how, what was, what happened after, like before and after, can you kind of yeah. paint a picture for so us? The... About that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a little different than Parkinson's disease, which is what I do now, but, but in this yeah. particular case, um, and this isn't FDA approved or anything. So it was, it was yeah. a study, but it treated the obsessive compulsive behavior of him. And mm -hmm. so I, I was only privy to the first three months follow up. Yeah. Um, but, but when we followed up and saw the mother, she was crying. Uh, the boy had not injured himself. Um, and so she was able to care for him and actually keep him in the home. Wow. That's amazing. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Like, I mean, the mother cried, I cried, the surgeon cried. It was just like the most heartwarming experience, you know, I had ever had up to that point in my career. It's such an um, incredible impact on that person's it, life. Yeah. Through it that was. One procedure. And, you know, every, yeah. And every time I would go back to the lab, I would just think of like, is the lab work I'm doing, is this going to be applied to make somebody's quality of life better? You yeah. know, and, and the answer was probably not, the answer for me at least was not today and, and probably not, you know, 10 years from now, maybe in your lifetime, maybe not. And that just, that just stuck with me. Um, and at some point along the way, I shared with some of the other people that I'd worked with, one of which was a surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, who's now retired, but this experience and how that's what I wanted to do. And this opportunity came up. Uh, with Boston Scientific, and I guess he remembered me in that conversation, and you know made that connection happen. And then one thing led to another, and here I am, you know, doing yeah. doing this thing that I first saw 15 years ago, but now doing it with a different disease state. Wow, that's amazing! Didn't that's you have amazing. another? Didn't you work at another company in between? Is that right? I or, did. Yeah, yeah I did. that's that was what I kind thought. Kind of like, um, so I tried. I tried to get into this immediately right with another with another company who um had this device on the market first and basically they were not interested in someone with a phd doing a sales yeah. role uh, i love this story that, this is a good story this is a yeah, yeah please tell us about they, this sounds story. like it's, it's gonna relevant. be good it's really relevant yes <laughs> they, yeah so they told me that you know uh they appreciated the interest but you know someone with a phd wasn't really appropriate for this job that you know had to have uh, skills that were transferable to being able to have real conversations with people and that in their experience, people with PhDs didn't have that. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, well, you could wow. just at least interview me, right? And we could, you, you could see, I, I would think I would be really good at this and they just wouldn't have it. And it's interesting because that was 
you know, over 10 years ago when that happened. And I would say that the field is changing now. There are uh, a handful of PhDs in sales positions that are doing really well. And so I think, I think as time goes on, we'll see that, especially with some of these more advanced technologies, um, that's changing. That's changing. Yeah. So more advanced degrees are more common. Um, and it, it does take us, you know, it does take a special set of skills to do it. Um, yeah. But that being said, not every person who has a degree in international business is going to be a good salesperson, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and every PhD isn't going to be a good salesperson. That's why, thankfully, we have a lot of different things that we can do out there on the thing right. that's right for us. One of the things that I remember, so I remember this part of this story, which I remember you told me that where they were not, where after you worked for that company, they actually wanted, they wanted you to recruit other PhDs, you know, people with PhDs that you knew that would be a good fit because they realized that the skills that you brought to it, like you were in an independent problem solver, which they did not necessarily see out of some of the other people that they had doing your job. Yeah. So yeah. that's right. So actually, so the first, so the company I was talking about before, um, didn't ever actually gave, gave me the job, a job, but, uh, I did, I did end up getting a job with a company called, uh, Clearpoint Neuro and, and they were a company that was developing a way to deliver devices to the brain while the patient's asleep. So it's traditionally, you know, brain surgery is done awake. So, yeah. and I had been doing things like that, but in, in animal models. Uh, and so they, they too, you're exactly right. They were hesitant to hire me, but they're like, we're going to give it a shot. Um, and yeah, like it, it was such a great opportunity for me. I, f I filled that role perfectly. And I think the bridge from having been in academic research to this new startup company that, you know, had a new device that wasn't perfect, you know, there were, there was a lot of room uh, to make it better. Um, and so it was actually a really good fit. And you are right today. They now have, they have, well, they've hired at least two people that I've connected them with from Emory. Um, that I worked with at the Primate Center. And um, I know of another PhD that they hired while I was with them. Um, and I haven't been with them in about five years. So yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. So we changed the way that company looked pretty early on. And yeah, and I think that's there's amazing. a lot of others following. Yeah. So cool. So if anyone's out there listening with a PhD and you want to get in medical devices, just remember I was told no the very first time. And you know, here I am. So yeah, very successful and having done it for a, quite a while now. Wow. We're a lot older than I remember. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Let's not give our, our age away. Yeah, I'm not. Yet. I'm not. They, they got to hang around for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. That's so do you think, funny. Uh, did you think that there was any particular degree or educational trajectory that would help someone be good at your current job? You know, that's a really good question, um, and I've thought about that, and I don't. You know, I, when I think about the people that I work with who are my colleagues um, across the U.S., mm -hmm. I kind of think of us as like this motley crew, right? So, like, we all yeah. have different educational backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, but there are some commonalities that I, that I see. So, oh, like, cool. What are they? You know, yeah. we – so, yeah, so we all probably – work way more than we should. We have a really difficult <laughs> time with balancing quality, you know, quality of life versus work life. Cause I think our work does bring us some of our quality of life. Yeah. Um, so we work way too much. Um, the other one is that, you know, I think 
you have to be self-driven, right? Like you have to, yeah. you have to find pride or, or take some kind of um, accountability in your work so that you're driven to kind of like figure out what it is that you need. And that, that doesn't really make sense the way I said it. So let me say it a different way. Um, there's a lot of things that have to be done with this job. So, right, we want to find patients that we want to help, help the patients, you know, learn about the procedure, right? So they have access yeah. to it. Sometimes yeah. we have to help, we help them find a physician that'll do it. Um, sometimes we're in the neurology office to figure out, you know, to help them figure out how to get the programming right or in the surgery, uh, you know, and, and sometimes the device doesn't work correctly. Yeah. It's not often, but sometimes it doesn't, which is why we're there. So you have to be able to fix it, you know, to stay calm. It, and yeah. yeah. When there's a patient on the table, right. That's got their brain exposed and you got to figure out what's wrong. Um, so it's just a lot of different hats, but I think if you like that kind of thing, like if you like to always be doing something a little bit different, you know, you like to, uh, continuously educate yourself and learn more about different things. So for me, that was one of the draws of this job is that I'm one, I'm never doing the same thing, but two, there's always something new in the field that I can learn, Yeah. you know? And, and I think for me, the PhD helped. Not, not, not necessarily the PhD, but being able to read primary literature, understand if it's, you know, a good study, yeah. a bad study, or at least what the caveats might be or what the really strong yeah. points are. And then being able to take that to, say, a new physician that I want to introduce this to and be able to have a conversation with him or her at their level. Yeah. That, that gives me an advantage in some cases um, yeah. to be able to have those conversations yeah. You know, and then the other thing I, I feel like graduate school really helped me with in this job, which I definitely did not appreciate it at the time, is being able to talk science with, you know, someone who doesn't know as much as you do. So, like, when I yeah. go home at night and tell my husband about it or I go tell my mom about it, you know, you really got to understand it to be able to share it with them. Mm -hmm. And in this case, to really be able to, to help patients get access. Uh, to the education that they need, you have to be able to translate what it is in a way that they can understand. Yep. And so, you know, I think my graduate school experience helped with that as well. Yeah, because you also taught while you're in grad school too. I remember that. Like you did a lot when you were in grad school. <laughs> also for our audience, she also gave birth twice, I believe, <laughs> during I, that time. I did. <laughs> I, rem I remember, um, this is a funny story. So I remember I was nine months pregnant when I descended. Uh -huh. um, my dissertation and in my first pregnancy, you know, it took two days for, for the baby to be born. So I remember, you know, Jim asked me, he's like, what are we going to do if you go into labor? You know, my yeah. advisor and I was like, we're not going to do anything. We're going to finish this. Cause I'm not coming back. I'll stand here in labor. It took two, two days last time. Like <laughs> just bring me a chair. <laughs> Luckily that didn't happen. And you know, one of my fondest memories is when uh, you all left, right. And I had the, like the examination where they asked me all the questions and then yeah. I came out to celebrate because I passed you and all the girls had stuffed your stomachs. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I need to dig that picture up. That yeah, was, that, that one's was a good so one. So funny. Yeah, yeah that was that a good picture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I remember funny. you all looked way more pregnant than me. And Corinne, if I remember correctly, you had a lump, uh, like a sideways belly. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can tell none of y'all have been pregnant before. You know, it's way too <laughs> That's a good one. That was funny.
So I think yeah. you kind of touched upon this, um, but by saying that your work days are not that similar to each other, but what would you say like a typical work day or a couple of different like of your work days would be like, you know, just a mixture of what you do over the course of a day. So somebody would know yeah, what, but- what they might expect when they had your job, if they had your job. Yeah. Great question. So maybe I can tell you about like what my week looks like. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's perfect. So like, so yeah. like this week, um, so today's Thursday, right? So to, I'm going to start with what I did today and then we'll work kind of backwards and forwards. Yeah. But so, yeah. so this morning I actually went into uh, the hospital I was at yet. So yesterday we implanted two patients uh, with a deep brain stimulator. They both had Parkinson's disease. Um, and then, so they had, they got, you know, a lead that goes into the brain that delivers the stimulation. And they also got their battery packs, which is um, implanted right under the clavicle, under the skin, and that powers powers the lead. So this morning I went into the hospital and the neurosurgeon met, met me there in the patient's room and we actually turned their devices on. And so that, that was a pretty cool morning. Like those are my favorite mornings actually. So, yeah, well, you know, yeah. the patient has this really bad tremor um, and we'll, we turn the device on and, and evaluate the patient and optimize it so that it, it gets, you know, those symptoms gone. They have, you know, they'll have more programmings after that, but yeah, so that's what I got to do today. So today was probably my, my most rewarding, uh, thing that I get to do in this shop, right? Because these patients, some of these patients actually go from not being able to, you know, drink a cup of water because their hand is tremoring so bad to then mm-hmm. be able, being able to feed themselves again, without having to have someone help them yeah, or wow. dress their clothes. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they cry. Sometimes the caregiver cries. I'm always telling myself, don't cry, Elaine. Don't cry, Elaine. Um, but if I do, it's tears of happy joy, right? So it's okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, so that's what I did today. Um, and then, you know, I'll, after I come home from a day like that, I also had like, I had a call with uh, one of the girls on my team and, and my boss about some strategy things that we're trying to do down a little further south to, to get more neurologists to refer into this particular clinic. Um, yesterday, I was actually in surgery all day with these two patients. And so those days are actually really cool too, right? Because I get to go in there and watch a surgeon do brain surgery and, and he's on one side of the patient. And then there's a neurologist on the other side of the patient because these patients are awake. Um, and the yeah. neurologist is there basically explaining to them everything that's going on, evaluating them, making sure yeah. that there's you know nothing happening that he needs to let the neurosurgeon be aware of. Um, and then once the surgeon puts the device in, I get to turn it on. And then wow. alongside the neurologist, evaluate how the patient's responding. And it's really cool because they can do that while the patient's awake. So we can see you know, let's, we'll take tremor again and just use that as our, as our focus. But, you know, if the patient has tremor and then we turn the device on and the tremor goes away, we know we're in a good spot. Yeah. We can wow. also look at, you know, we can wow, also turn incredible. it up. Really, yeah. We can turn it up high and see what kind of, we call them side effects the patient has. So they may have tingling in their hand or pulling in their face. And by doing that, we can actually map out where the lead is at in the brain. So having that plus, you know, the clinical benefit, we can say if we're in the right spot or not. And the great thing is if we're not in the right spot, the neurosurgeon can move it according to where, where the brain map tells us we are and wow. get it in the right spot before the patient leaves the OR. 
Wow. Um, so that was yesterday. So that that's a really cool day too. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. And then I've actually had a really busy week. So this is actually a really good example. Of it. So yeah. Tuesday, I was actually in Panama City Beach and we had a support group meeting there. Uh, so it was for, for Parkinson's patients. And this particular meeting, um, I just kind of helped facilitate conversations around deep brain stimulation. So all the people show up. Um, I tell them a little bit about deep brain stimulation and what it is, you know, how it can improve the certain symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And then we just had, we just sat around and talked about it, like what, what their symptoms are, could it possibly be a good fit for, for deep brain stimulation? And if they're interested, how would they get more information? Um, and those are really rewarding days too, except for that I had to drive six hours to get there. Um, yeah, but, that's not but cool. those yeah. patients. <laughs> Yeah, they're also really always so appreciative, too, because, you know, they don't always know where to go to, exactly. to get this information. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember what I did on Monday. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I can't remember. And tomorrow I have a girl on my team that I'll be riding around along with when we'll go be visiting some neurology offices, um, just kind of checking in, making sure that they're all set. If they have any questions about patients they're referring to the surgery center, we'll answer those. Yeah. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about some new science that's come out. Interesting. So, wow. yeah, it's kind of a diverse job. But I would yeah, say that, that this week kind of like encapsulates everything that I do. Oh, okay. So a little bit of, of all of it. Um, so, and then there's some more, a little bit of like sometimes, you know, we'll have to deal with, with the business side of things. So, um, like, hospital contracts and, and billing for the devices and, and all of that. That's my least favorite part of the job, but it, it's a part of the job that pays me. So um, I get that done for that reason. Yeah. We're in part of the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always we got to things... get paid. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. Super exciting though. I mean, like yeah. what a rewarding career yeah. path. You know, it really yeah. is. I feel so fortunate to have somehow found my way here. Um, and, you know, it wasn't the traditional way that people get there, but I wouldn't change a thing because yeah. it's been rewarding the whole way, you know, everything yeah. that I've done. Like I tell yeah. my kids this sometimes, like I really, I feel like I've just followed what I have fun doing. Yeah, you know, like, no, what, that's great. What do I enjoy? And luckily, fortunately for me, it's worked out. Um, you know, I have a good job and, and so I'm very, I feel very lucky in that, in that yeah. respect. It's interesting because I know other people that have said the same things that they feel like, and I know it happened for me too, which it's like when you find something that works or like you find something that's right for you, things seem to kind of fall into place somehow, you know, and it sounds crazy, but like, it seems like it's a real thing sometimes. It's like, I don't know what that is, but do you, do you feel like that kind of happened? I mean, you still have to work, yeah. it, but you know what I mean? It's like, or maybe you're just more, you know, inspired, like, because you like it, you kind of go more in that direction. So you notice what's good opportunity, but I've heard it from other people. So it's really no, interesting. I, I yeah. totally, yeah, I agree with you. And I feel that way. And this is probably going to sound a little bit kooky, but, you know, I, I feel like if, if you have positive energy around what you're doing, then yeah. you're going to attract people to it. Right. I and agree. so, I agree with you, you know, too. Just, yeah. Yeah. By loving what we do, we attract people to want to do it too, or the people that, you know, patients see that and then they want to learn more about it or yeah. neurologists see that and hear that. And then they want to work with you with, with those patients too. 
Um, exactly. Yeah. Building excitement. Do, right? Yeah. yeah. And people can sense when that's genuine interest and skill and stuff like that, I think, you know, like, because I know I, I encounter that as well. It's like, you know, we're not, it's like people detect authenticity and passion and stuff like yeah. that. So I think when you find something that's a right fit for you and you're able to transmit that, it really helps. So, and clearly, I mean, <laughs> you have found the right fit for you. <laughs> Right. Well, and, you know, it's funny because it makes me think of, of you as well with what you're doing now with the science writing and the podcast yeah. and, yeah. you know, the, the social influencing. Because I remember when we were in grad school, we called you our social ambassador. <laughs> you were friends with everyone. You knew you knew what everyone's projects were. Everyone she continues to love, be this. You're welcoming to everyone. <laughs> you know, and so it's like you've, I mean, I don't know if you'll be your guest on your own podcast, but you, know, you have that, a similar story. It's just you've ended yeah. up in a different, different We are on, in a later kind of date. Passage. Master connectors. Yeah. In, in the That's later right. date. Uh, me, Lindsay, and Heidi will also be talking about our own uh, trajectories. We'll be interviewing each okay. other. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely <laughs> tune in for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so I think you touched upon some of these, some of these, like, in your discussion, but we'll just kind of go, you know, we don't need to delve too much into it, I think, because, like, you talked about a little bit. But just in general, like, I think you said, for example, being able to communicate science, which of your skills that you have, or I guess your traits that you felt came in most handy for your job. You know what I mean? For this job is one Yeah, question. that's a good yeah. question. Um, so I think uh, multitasking has, has been a good, good trait, right? Cause I'm doing, always doing several things at, at the same time. Yeah. Um, and just being self-motivated and, and yeah. driven, yeah. Um, you know, to, to do the, whatever the next thing is that you need to do, whether it's from the business development side, from yeah. the patient education side, or just, you know, clinical follow-up. Yeah. Being able to, to handle doing all of that at the same time has yeah. been helpful. Um, you know, I do think, so one of the things I think that sets me apart from, from my colleagues is the fact that I am like data driven. So, you know, if I can collect some numbers and put yeah. them in an Excel sheet, like I feel at home, you know, like I feel yeah. <laughs> very warm and happy. And so whenever <laughs> I can, <laughs> I will collect data. And so sometimes this data can actually be beneficial. So, you know, one of the examples, the recent examples I have is that we recently came out with this lead that stimulates, but it, it it points it, it can point it in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. And so I actually let a couple of the centers use, use this new lead uh, for a year. But then I went mm -hmm. back and collected the data over the past years and said, okay, are they using a directional feature more than they were using this omnidirectional feature? Cause you can still do it, you know, the yeah. old traditional way, or you can use the new enhanced features. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of been an argument in the community of, is it, does it really matter, right? We have this new yeah. fancy thing, but does it matter? Well, I was actually able to collect the data and do some statistics on it and put it in this pretty little graph and show that actually it does matter, you know, and I won't quote the numbers cause I'm, I'll probably get in trouble with someone somewhere <laughs> for, for doing that, but, but for sure it matters, you know, and I yeah, can say yeah, it yeah. Clear, yeah. You know, yeah. Say, yeah, it matters. Look, look, I have the numbers. And then, you know, one of the things I was on a call with today was, you know, talking about touching more neurologists. And, 
And, you know, we were talking about, well, what is the cadence that that we need or how many times you actually have to talk to someone before they remember you? And I was like, hey, guys, you know what? We we need to come up with a way, a survey to do to ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. A cadence survey and and then graph it with all these different neurologists that we're touching and see. We could answer this question with data. And everyone just looks at me and they're like, you know, they first give me that look like another spreadsheet. I'm like, I'll do it. And they're like, okay. I was like, if I have some yeah. sheets, will you fill it out? I'll, yeah. I personally will analyze the data. And um, so I think that's one thing that sets me apart from, from yeah. a lot of people in my field is that, one, they, they don't really care about the data, right? And yeah. two, it just doesn't make them feel happy to be able to run statistics on something that they've collected. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you're getting to, <laughs> you know, carry over your science training and everything into this. And That's right. And you get yeah, to do the and, things you want to do, which is smart. You know, I mean, it's, that's great. Yeah. Like, give me the numbers. Yeah, so, I totally get it. Yeah. I know. And you there, know, I will say like, if, if you, yeah, I was going to just say this real quick for anyone yeah. out there that's thinking of this career with a PhD, like I do, you know, I hate to like toot my own horn or anything, but I can read the science. Right. And, and really understand what, what were the analyses that were run? What, what does it mean? You know, are, is what they're saying, really supported by the data and I can have those high level conversations with neurologists, you know, or with any physician really. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that is a really, that's, I have found that really useful that I think yeah. even the field didn't know it could be a useful thing out in the field. Yeah. See, um, there you go. Exactly. That's like an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's interesting. It makes yeah. sense, but you know, you don't even realize like it wasn't expected or let's say, that might not be something that people realize we're going to improve it that much. And now, you know, that, you know, having those skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are a lot, a lot of transferable skills that we pick up, you know, in graduate yeah. training that we don't even necessarily uh, put labels to until yeah. we need to. So there's, there's probably many more of these. That, exactly. That that's, it's funny that you say that, cause that's kind of what like we're trying to do with this podcast, try to figuring out. Cause like one that I know is, you know, being self-motivated or being really good at problem solving and stuff like that. But like, there's other things like that, communicating science, you know, or not knowing how helpful that is, like just realizing, right. you know, so that's kind of important to figure out. That's one of the things we want to figure out. So thank you so much for those examples. Um, yeah. Lot, and so I think your podcast is going to bring a lot of awareness to graduate programs on like what, you know, cause when we were in grad school, they brought in you know, professors that spoke on what they were doing in their lab as like yeah. research options, right? Yeah. Um, but this podcast, I feel like is going to really open the eyes so that maybe grad students will have more options and, and more um, exposure to different career paths exactly. than they might have in the past. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. So like, we want to start with what we know, which is like science-based transitions and uh, PhDs, but you know, just in general, how many people have gotten a bachelor's degree and then did something completely different? We're even going to do some of that kind of stuff down the line when get people that know about that. Because in reality, these days, everybody changes their jobs so much. And then there's a lot of angst around it sometimes. And right. it's actually reality. And it's like being flexible and seeing what's out there. But people don't necessarily tell the things that we're, that's what we're trying to show, like different aspects of what's out there, right? So I think a lot of people- it'll be helpful. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think a lot of people don't even realize what skills they have and exactly. especially right. graduate students, especially like new PhDs. A lot of times it's like, 
okay, I have this now, what can I actually do? Because I can't get that faculty position. You know, I need to go do a postdoc or I need to go do this and that. And it's like, you actually have a lot of skills. You just have to sit down and think about those that you're really passionate about, like Elaine's, you know, passion around, you know, neuroscience and just kind of going for it, you know, and recognizing those skills. Definitely. And the same across the spectrum. People learn a lot of things during their bachelor degree and their master's degree that they don't even realize, you know, and, uh, and, you know, you can really expand on it in different directions. So along these lines, was there any skills that you didn't have that you wish you had before you started the job? Uh, Of course not. I was perfect when I started. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm not going to argue with you. It sounds like it's true. (laughs) Um, You know, there. Probably. Um, I can't think of any right now. And I know that when I first started this job, I learned a whole lot about business development and like how, you know, to work with hospitals for contracts. I mean, things that I had no idea about. And luckily, you know, my company just I had really great support. Um, yeah, that's good. And, and they helped me with that part. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't know that like if I had learned it before the job, I would have even bothered learning it. Right. Like, yeah, it wasn't even yeah. something that I was very interested in um yeah but because it was applying so, to something you're interested in then you have the motivation to learn it i'm like that too so that's totally exactly understand. right yeah i'm like that you too. made that connection it. and yeah it became yeah. interesting you know, yeah but, the one thing i do wish is that i could speak spanish fluently so like yeah. we have had you know and i lived in central america so i can speak speak some Spanish and understand some of it, but, you know, I can't actually have a conversation about deep brain stimulation in Spanish, Yeah, but it would be really cool. (laughs) That's the one thing that would be really cool to do because we've had to have translators and stuff come in, but if, you know, that ship sailed, you know, I don't have the capacity in my brain at at this point. Yeah, fair enough. Um, But I wish I could. So, um, yeah, I think I'm just going to ask like a couple more questions because, you know, yeah. we've ha- we've kept you for so long. So, and you've said so many really intriguing things that I think you kind of touched upon. This, so I think you touched upon this, but let's like make it a little more, uh, you know, formalized, which is what are okay. some of personality traits or characteristics that would make someone a good fit or an ill-fitting traits for your job? So like you told us a couple self-motivated, you know, <laughs> work a lot, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But what are something that like, you know, if for example, for a job as a writer, if you really like people and you only write that, you know, you might not like that, you know, like it's hard because you need yeah. to interact with people like that kind of stuff. So like, is there stuff right. that, and they could be things that maybe people will evolve over time, but maybe wouldn't be, you know, either a good fit or an ill fit, whatever you come. Right. Yeah. Well, you definitely have, to, I mean, I would, that's a really good, good question. Um, I mean, I interact with people all day long, so you definitely need to be someone who, uh, like likes people. Um, and it's in different, you know, it's in different capacities. So if you're interacting with a physician, you might be talking about science or something that's related to patient care. Whereas if you're talking to a patient, you might be trying to help them, you know, work their device from home or educating them. And then, my goodness, you know, the corporate America has so many phone calls. They're always on a call with somebody about something. (laughs) Um, And it's funny that you ask it because like, I used to think I was an extrovert, you know, back like in grad school and, you know, (laughs) we go out and party and have fun and do all these things. But 
But nowadays I'm realizing that maybe I'm not, right? So like after a full day of like interacting with people, I really enjoy coming home and just yeah. having everything be quiet and kind of calm. But that could also be my age, you know? I so. think I think it's a combination of things because I've experienced this too. I think it was part of it is definitely, I think age is a part of it. And also when you have a job where you are expected to interact with people, even if you're an extrovert or you're, if you're an uh, extrovert and introvert or whatever you are, I think your batteries need to be recharged. You know what I mean? Like I think that when you interact with people all day, it's hard to keep that up. And I think, yeah, it gets lower as you grow older. I know that I have experienced the same. Um, Well, that's good. Another, (laughs) yeah. Another part of the job is that like, you know, I feel like I'm always moving, right? Like I'm always on the go, Yeah. uh, which I love, you know, I cannot to till to save my life. So like, I, I love writing, but I don't think I could be a writer because I don't think I could sit still long enough. Um, so, so, you know, that, I think that's a character trait is, you know, enjoying the constant move, constantly yeah. being on the move is another one. Um, believe it or not, you know, a good team player. You yeah. Gotta, you, there's a lot of different people that, that you have yeah. to work with. So working well with others and, you know, not letting things bother you too much and just kind yeah, of letting sense. it roll off your shoulders. And one of the things, good quality. Yeah. And I definitely hear that you need patience because it's like patience to help patients, you know, or things like that. Cause it sounds like sometimes you're trying to explain things to people that might not understand, or, you know, you, yeah. probably, I imagine, you know, you might have to do the same thing a couple, you know, over and over again. So like you need to understand right. people and also be patient and probably calm for them. So, yeah, I love that. You got to yeah. have patience. Yeah. With the patient. Because yeah. well, some of them, you know, some of them are coming, calling you from a nursing home. Yeah. You know, and they might be 90 years old. Someone else might be 45. And then yeah. somebody else might have a bad phone connection and somebody else just might not get it. You know, so yeah, you, you got to have patience for the patients. Yeah. But the patients are also what bring the reward. Yep. And then, so one of the things that I would, that I'm going to ask most people, I think, which is, what would be the top three tips that you would give to someone interested in pursuing your career path? Okay. That's a great question. So first thing I would, I would say is one, be persistent. Like, no, you're probably not going to get the first or maybe even the fifth or 10th job that you apply to. Uh, But be persistent because once you get your foot in the door with that first device job or pharmaceutical job, just sort of getting, getting in there it gets a lot easier. Uh, once the door's opened, it's opened, especially after you've proven yourself. Um, the second piece of advice I would give would be, you know, network, talk to anybody and everyone you can and let them know that's what you're interested in because you never know who's going to be your advocate to help you get that first position. Um, and, and quite frankly, if it wasn't for people around me that advocated for me to get this position, I wouldn't have gotten it. I wouldn't have even known about it. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, my third piece of advice would be go after what your gut tells you to go after. You know, if it's, if you feel like you love it and it's going to make, make you happy while you do that, then, then go for it no matter what it is. Yeah. I like that. Those are, that's some good advice. And then I came up with a fun question that I'm going to ask uh, and I'm going to tailor it to the person that's, uh, you know. And actually, they asked me a version of this in my qualifying exams, but okay. <laughs> it's a fun question, oh, I promise. Oh, no, I'm going to have flashbacks. <laughs> no, no, it's fun. It's fun. I said, name three okay. people, anyone in history or the present, that you would like to have a beer with. 
Oh, boy. Okay. Um, you know, I would like to have a beer with Oprah Winfrey. Oh, I like um, that. That would be Yeah, cool. I think for, <laughs> yeah. for a lot of different reasons. I have a lot of things I want to talk to Oprah about. Yeah. Um, the second person, you know, I, I would like to have a beer with uh, Jim Thomas. So that's the guy that was my Your advisor. advisor in my PhD. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. and we went different ways, and I haven't talked to him in a long time. Really? Um, yeah. So he would be a good one to, to reconnect with. That's and then really sweet, the third actually. person. <laughs> yeah, let's see. The third person, I want this one to be this. I think a, hmm, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite decide. I think I think Neil Armstrong. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That would be that would be my third person. All Very right. cool. All right. Awesome. So, right. um, so for our listeners, that's going to conclude the interview. We are going to include some of the information that Elaine gave us some information about resources. We will also probably include, we do that. We're going to be doing this for all the positions we talk about, include if there's resources, either we'll provide or the guests will provide that might give you some information about the topic and also some information about what the salary range or what you can expect um, monetarily for a job in this industry. Um, so Lindsay and Heidi, do you guys have anything else you want to ask Elaine? No, I think we covered quite a bit. And I just think that everything that you're doing and, and the things that led up to, you know, your career have been super interesting and really inspiring because you know, it's like, hey, just keep at it, be persistent, stay motivated, you know, look to the skill sets that you're building and find that thing that really, you know, drives you. And yep. yeah, I think that that's, that's really key know that you have the skills and that if you have the drive, you know, you can make it happen. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I feel like it was a really inspirational story of, you know, as you mentioned, being told no, but not letting that really stop you and just, you know, getting to do what you love. So it's a great story. Well, thank you all so much. It was really a pleasure to be here um, and an honor to be asked to do this. And no, I'm love getting to hear Corinne's laugh. It's been a while since I've I love there having it you. It's my favorite. I, I love having you as our as our inaugural guest because as I knew I knew it, I knew it would be great. And thank you so much. We learned a lot. And it, your story is very inspiring. It has inspired me in the past. So that's why I had invited you. And also, you know how to tell a good story. And we really appreciate that. So thank you. And we well, appreciate what you're well, doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me, ladies. Yes. All right. So thank you. And yeah, such a pleasure. The, yeah. And we look forward to the next uh, Business of Doing Science podcast. Thank you for joining us and listening to the Business of Doing Science podcast. For more information on our guests and access to career development resources, please click on the link to our website below. And remember, you can also visit the website to learn more about how Bagamian Sci can help you do science.